verse 7 because we did the first six verses last week. I don't want to take a special moment and just pray specifically for our country here. Uh, you're probably aware of it, but the suicide rate skyrockets this time of year. And it's, it's a really, it's a pretty rough thing. And, and, and that's just, you know, like usually when you catch wind on something, you get the tip of the iceberg, if that makes any sense at all. There, there are the people that run into drugs at this time of year and fall back into addictions and, and just make really, really stupid choices. Tis the season. And a lot of it is because we have this mental idea of what, I don't know, versus whatever kind of other idea you could have, of, of this perfect, wonderful life kind of thing that nobody really seems to amount to. And the pressure of seeing old family members or going back to old places or whatever, it just really drives some people pretty mad. So I just want to take a moment. And to be honest, I don't even want to pray away that. What I want to pray is our availability and readiness to be used to bring people to Jesus through those times. The reason a lot of those people go there is because they don't have the Lord to rest on. So, uh, and I'm not telling you that Christians are exempt. You're aware of that. I'm not saying that we're exempt from those kind of challenges or temptations as well. That I do want to pray for in regards to our steadfastness, but also for our availability. So, pray with me, would you please? Lord, I am confident that every person in this room will encounter someone or someones over this Christmas season that will be challenged to avoid or just be short with or, or curt with or whatever the, the case would be. And yet, I mean, perhaps there are some that we need to be that way, just to be strong and, and clear. But, but Lord, if there are any, and I'm sure there are going to be, that you know that their personalities, their whatever it is that grates on us or, or whatever, Lord, that it is simply a cry for help. And this is what I'm asking for every believer to have our decoder rings on, our spiritual discernment to recognize when a cry for help, which often and almost never sounds like one, But when whatever it is is genuinely a cry for help, that we would be able to discern it. And to be able to patiently and lovingly bring them to the cross and to the Savior. The one thing they really need. So Lord, I pray that you would not allow us at any moment to be predisposed to not being available, not being ready, to be spiritually unready. At any moment, don't let us be so. But rather, Lord, let us be spirit-filled this Christmas more than we've ever been. And therefore, more spiritually ready, having our spiritual radars on, Lord, to be able to reach into the need and bring the answer, Jesus Christ. Make us so ridiculously bold that we inspire ourselves. That we shock ourselves. Give us such a confidence in you. So overflow out of us that we spill you upon every person we bump into. And for every believer, Lord, I pray that you give us that spine, that solidity, that 
strength to be immovable in our walk with you, unless it's to walk better. We pray this would be the most fruitful, the most joyful, the most spirit-filled, the most Christ-centered, the most hopeful Christmas we've ever lived thus far. That this season would be one we will look back in wonder of the great things you have done. So, we commit that to you, Lord. And just pray that you would do marvelous work. And now, as we get into your word, profoundly minister, I pray. Jesus, in your name. Amen. I would say tonight, of course, as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Of course, let the Bible be your authority. We are in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. We looked at the spiritual battle last week, if you can remember, those of you who were here. And Paul, in the simplest sense now, was referring to it in a very profound and heavy way. He's kind of like saying, well, look, at they're kind of playing dominoes while a real war is waging outside they appear to be ignorant of. The people are, that Paul is addressing, Paul seemed to always had very staunch opponents to the ministry. And I'm not talking about staunch opponents like somebody writes an article in the paper or somebody blogs and calls you a name or somebody tries to start a rumor. I'm talking about people who follow you from town to town trying to shut you down. People who have to try to find some criteria to disqualify a church planter from a church he's planted, to a church he's planted. And Paul is clearly hurt. It's hard to find a more emotional letter than you will find 2 Corinthians to be. Where else will you read things like, it seems like the more that we love you, the less we're loved. Open your heart to us. Our hearts are laid wide open for you. Would you please open your hearts to us? And to think that Paul is writing to people that he more than likely prayed with to receive the Lord. I mean, people that he gave his life over for, that he dug into the trenches and took the blows and the abuse and the, just the nastiness. He stood in the way. He stood in between them and angry parents. Them and confused and angry old friends that used to party and used to do crazy things with. And to sit and cry with them over those moments of weakness and to sit and pray with them in those moments of confusion and to disciple them and watch them walk on their own feet. Paul would spend over a year and a half at Corinth the first time he was there. These are old, close friends. And to have those same people look and go, I don't even know if you're a Christian. Could you imagine the pain you would feel? 
Well, what possible criteria could they use? Paul's whole life is given over. I understand why Paul would say, you know, to people who are boasting, and we could develop it in a handful of ways, but I'm going to shoot for one that I believe the Lord's showing here. Paul would speak about how if the criteria were his sufferings, he would win. If the criteria was his commitment and his faithfulness to the work, he would win. But he says, among all of the other sufferings, the shipwrecks and the beatings and the and the, the expulsions from communities. He talks about the, the suffering he has because he's tempted like every other human being and the temptation to just want to even let up a little bit and just let loose a little bit, sin a little bit, but he knows that there's no way that that's available to him and he shouldn't. He talks about what, part, what things are you tempted with that I don't inwardly burn. And he says, besides all of these things, the sleeplessness and the lack of food and the poor treatment that I've gotten in so many places. And Paul's not doing this because he's trying to ensue pity. He's unfortunately defending himself. He says, the constant concern over the churches. To lay his head at bed at night and to, to go... Oh God, what about that Corinthian church? And not just, well, they're kind of getting crazy in the charismatic side of things and they're, they're very carnal, but they've gotten to the point where I just, just they're, getting, they're getting so influenced by people that are really getting them to focus on things that just aren't scriptural. Well, two, Paul's two main opponents, first of all, appear to be a group called the circumcision. We see them throughout Scripture. They're a group of, in essence, Pharisees who've responded to an altar call, who really believe that the only way you really can be saved is to be as Jewish as possible. God only saves Jews. And if you're not a Jewish person, maybe you could pretend to be one close enough that God will sneak you in. So there's those. And then there are those who really are kind of, to be honest, they're just the name it and claim it group. Some might call it the blab it and grab it. And the whole point is, their whole doctrine is, is that what God wants for you, and it comes, by the way, from a Jewish mindset as well, that if you were really blessed by God, you would be rich. And if you were really blessed by God, you would never be sick. And that, of course, pervades a lot of the church in mass today. The problem is, when you look at somebody like Paul, because he's neither. He's neither rich as we know him financially, nor is he well physically. And so if that is what you evaluate somebody's blessing by God, well, then I can understand how you could start trying to disqualify Paul. And that's the issue with Paul. By people, by the way, I remind you, who actually the only reason that they're probably in church in the first place is because they responded to an altar call Paul gave. And he goes kind of for the throat of it here in verse 7. Look at it with me. Do you look at things according to the outward appearance? If anyone is convinced in himself that he is Christ, well, then let him again consider this in himself, that just as he is Christ, well, even so we are Christ's. For even if I should boast somewhat more about our authority 
which the Lord gave us for ratification and not for your destruction, I shall not be ashamed, lest I seem to terrify you by letters, for his letters, they say, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. Let such a person consider this, that what we are in word by letters when we are absent such we will also be indeed when we are present. Before we develop the last portion of this, where he starts talking about the way that they set up their own regime to do this, is that the way that, in Paul, notice Paul says that they say, that they are his opponents, which according to Scripture seem to be doing it for two reasons. One is for financial gain. And the second is to make Paul's life more miserable. They are genuinely existing to some degree to try to prove that they could be better than Paul. Have you ever met people like that? It's almost so astounding that it's hard to picture within the realm of Christianity. Paul would say, if you remember when he writes to the Romans... Some preach Christ out of genuinely proper motives, and some, by the way, preach Christ out of selfish ambition, assuming they could add further problems to my chains. In other words, some are actually trying to preach the gospel for the purpose of trying to make Paul more miserable. Could you even fathom that? And Paul says, what does it matter to me? In either case, Christ is preached, and now I'm going to rejoice. If you really think that making my life miserable is going to happen because you're preaching to Christ and people are getting saved, go ahead and make my life miserable. Which tells us that Paul clearly was not the most important thing in Paul's life, or that would have been very different. So there are those that are like that. And there are others, he says, you know, we're like others peddling the word. And you can certainly go to places that everything costs you. You need counseling, that's going to cost you. You need to get married, that's going to cost you. You need to have an appointment with the pastor, that's going to cost you. You want to spend some... I mean, I've been, we've been told about places where when you want to get prayed for, you could decide what level you get prayed for by how much you give. You really want to get... You know, if you've got like a little bit of money, maybe you can get prayed for by the greeter at the door. A little bit more, you can get an elder... A little bit more you can get. If you've got enough money, maybe you can get a little bit of time to get paid for it. What kind of nonsense is that? Do you really think God's going to go, Oh, well done. I'm really glad you created those strata for poor people so you never have to pray for them. And Paul knew this. So if you have a problem with this, understand so did God and so did these guys as well. Here's the problem. How do you take a church that has this relationship that has this relationship where there is this sort of respect and honor because you've seen commitment and you've seen service and you've seen love. How do you take that and flip it on its ear? Well, the easiest way to do that is simply to breed suspicion. To create some kind of whisper campaign about something that will really make you really question the genuine intent of a person by making it look like some new surface category is out there are some new criteria is out there and that's exactly what these guys are doing they're saying well look at it from the surface he's poor look at it from the surface he's sick 
And that's kind of where I want to start this. I'd like you to think for a moment what we could possibly ascertain from appearance. If someone were to walk in, you tell me what you, and we could be wrong, we're all agreeing on that, but what could you possibly ascertain just by seeing someone walk in? What would you, could you possibly ascertain? Can you give me, and, and this is actually, I'm opening it up for people to sort of throw out ideas. Maybe the way they look, whether they're old or poor or young, although we have people that really blow that curve, don't we? We have some people that look like they're 14 and they're actually 30. We have some people that, are, that look like they're 50 and they're actually 75. But for the most part, you could kind of think that person's roughly of this generation. Would you agree? What else could you possibly ascertain by a person when they walk in? Gender. And we can all agree that we could even be wrong on that one. Yeah, we don't have to bring up any examples as a reason. Nationality in some cases, you're right, I would agree. I mean, you could probably say this person's probably this, you know. I wouldn't look, for instance, at Ali and think she's probably North African, you know. I wouldn't look at Lucas and think he's probably Asian. You know, I mean, I think there, we have some rough categories there, although we could be even wrong in those. Really, I, although I don't, you're not African, are you, Ali? No? But then look at, you know, you, you look at, you know, I think Shirley actually blows them all, right? I mean... She's, she's African. Of course, she, she's South African, but just the same. Okay, what else? Scripturally, you can try to ascertain whether they're rich or not. And he'll tell us that in regards to James. He says, there's a person who walks in and they've got fine clothes on. You could kind of look and you'd think, well, you sit here in a very special spot because you're clearly rich. So that's one thing people do appraise. Right? You know, the homeless person was probably going to be dressed very differently. Anything else? Strength. A person walks in and you see these guys and they're like kind of round in every corner. And you think that person's probably really strong. And by the way, some of you may be aware of the fact just because a guy's really big doesn't mean he's really strong. I've seen that where they're, or they're really lazy in some cases. They're like, can you carry this for me? I'm like, are you serious? You're like four times my size. You're built like a truck. Anyways. Yeah, we can get that. Social giftedness. You can see in some cases, just by looking them at the surface, some things you can look at and go, well, that person may be of some kind of concern because of the way you may observe them for the first few minutes. You know, we had someone a few weeks ago, it was like a couple gals were sitting here and a guy came over and just sat right next to the two of them and you could see them both looking at me like, help me. You know, just a little uncomfortable at first and you just kind of sat kind of close to them and it was kind of beautiful to watch Daniel kind of come over, let me pray for you and let's go for a walk. I'm just kidding. Anyway, you can... here's the point. Is you can look at a lot of things from the surface but we can be fooled in any of them. You can fool me. You can fool me into thinking you're super Christian and not be at all. And, and by the way, of course, that's what God told us all the way back in 1 Samuel 16, 7, when he told us that man does look at the outer appearance, but it's the Lord who knows the heart. That becomes the rough part for us, right? But I mean, you know, around me, you can, you know, holy hallelujah, and you can sing really loud and spin around and, and say something and, and, and just go, you know, should have bought a Honda, should have bought a Honda, or burrito, Honda, burrito, Honda, burrito, and make me think that you're speaking in tongue, or whatever the case. You know, I mean, you can, you can fabricate a lot of things from the surface. 
And this is the point of this of this right here. Is that the Lord has made really clear. We are not to be surface Christians. Here's the problem. To not be a surface Christian. We must invest. We must spend time. Now, no human being can spend time with everyone. That's clear. It's hard enough to spend time with people that are close to you when you're that busy. But we could be lazy and just assume everybody is what they say they are. And that causes all kinds of trouble. And we could get to the point where we get concerned about what our surface looks like. To where we really don't have any depth of Christianity at all. And that was exactly the problem of the Pharisees. When Jesus speaks about them, he calls them whitewashed tombs. He goes, on the outside they look beautiful, but the inside's full of dead man's bones. They're so busy washing the outside of the cup, the inside, the nasty part. That's the part you drink from. That we get so careful about our presentation that we forget what it is. And now hear me on this. The surface is either going to be a threshold for fruit, for real fruit, or a platform for plastic flowers. The second one you can do all day. Scripturally, God tells us what happens with the surface. He tells us in Matthew 7 that two men build houses. We don't read that either house looks different from the other. We don't read that one has a mezuzah and one doesn't, or one has a shalom welcome mat or one doesn't, or one has shutters or better, you know, double-paned windows or central heating. The, the point is not the variation of houses. The point is the variation of foundations. Jesus says that when the men build this, that the rains will come down on both, the floods rise for both, the wind beats on, the, on both houses. The storms were not a variable, they were consistent. But one house collapsed and one didn't, because one was founded or rooted in the rock. Jesus compared this, by the way, to a person who heard God's word and a person who heard it and did it. So we can be those who sit in church and hear God's word and have the house that everyone could look at and go, that's a lovely house, but not actually still have it founded on the rock. Because for that to happen, we actually have to take it to ourselves and inculcate it into our lives. That's entirely different. And we'll be honest, a lot of contemporary Christianity is much a spectator sport. We listen, we, get, we observe, and then we can go back. We may be able to argue our positions, but we really don't let it change us like it could. Because if it did, we might actually be crazy, mad people for God. Like we should. Jesus tells us in Matthew 13 about a sower who goes to sow some seed and then falls on four soil types. One's the wayside, much like the pavement, in which, of course, it never takes root, and so the birds come and eat it. The birds were never a happy character. They were not like, oh, yippee birds. 
They're eating the seed you were hoping would turn into a, a plant, bear forth fruit. The second, it fell on rocky soil. To this day, and many of you who will come with us to Israel, you'll see terrace farming is one of the most popular ways of farming. It's, it's a way of farming where you kind of take the rocks and put it on little layers so it looks like steps instead of the, the hill or the slope that you originally had. So you don't have very, very deep soil. So what happens is he tells us that in the parable, the seed grows quickly, shoots straight up, but when the sun comes out, it withers away and dies. And this is what he compares to a person who hears the word and even seems to respond. Could look like you saw him in an altar call. And then he shoots up in such a way that you're like, wow, check that person out. They seem to have such great gifts. They seem to have such great talents. They look so gifted for ministry. But it says, but when persecution comes because of the word, they have no root in themselves and thus wither away and die. From the surface, they looked awesome. But below the surface, where it really matters, there was not enough root to sustain them when someone challenges them about the Word. Let me warn you, every one of you, if someone knows you're a Christian, somewhere down the line, they're going to start trying to ask you questions and hammer you on your faith in the Bible. And you are either going to crumble. If you are a surface Christian, you are going to crumble. Or you're going to be rooted in God's word. And watch God really strengthen you and blossom you. If you are a surface Christian, when trials come, you will collapse. When challenges and changes come, you will collapse. When things don't make sense, you will collapse. When the rains come, which you can't stop, you will, we will cave in. And when the floods come, you will get carried away. And when the winds blow, you will fall if you are a surface Christian. If the whole purpose is to show things from the outside. But that's never been God's intention. But Paul says, these people have built a whole church on it on what they can show you from the outside. To try to show you that God's blessings look like the rich. That God's blessings look like the young and good-looking. That God's blessings look like the socially gifted. That God's blessings look like, and that's the idea, it's all the things you can put together from the surface. It says, if you think you're Christ, shouldn't you think I am too? I've been given authority to edify you, not to destroy you. But this is what they say. I mean, you read his letters. They're really impressive. They are heavy letters. Peter would say people that are even even many people that are perverted in their minds twist Paul's letters to their own destruction. He goes and then Peter's like, I I get this. It's kind of hard to understand what he's saying sometimes. But I get it. Peter kind of reads and he's like, I don't know what he's saying. He says, there are people that that's what they do. But he goes, but people look and they go, you know what's wrong with Paul? Paul. Paul's what's wrong with Paul. Not in the sense that Paul was like a drunkard or Paul was sleeping around with the girls. Paul was completely the opposite from what we can tell. Paul seemed like a guy of tremendous character. 
Paul seemed like the kind of guy that we should be intimidated if what we really wanted was a standard of manliness in, in Christ. But he probably wasn't going to get a date at the church. And probably there weren't going to be any girls that were going to come up afterwards and say, I really think the Lord told me that we're supposed to get married. He's probably not going to get a lot of that. When Paul speaks after the choir sings, more than likely the choir isn't going to be staring at him with batting their eyes. And they say, well, is that what you want to look at? You want to look at a guy that's unimpressive to look at? You want to listen to a guy that seems to go on forever, but he's unimpressive in what? The way he speaks? You can imagine what that would be like. Somebody that has a problem with their words, trips over them a bit. They're not necessarily very socially gifted. You can picture whoever that is in your own mind that would sort of characterize that. That would naturally be, in essence, the person that you would think couldn't be very bright if they spoke that way. And these people have built a whole case now to try to disqualify Paul. See, if they don't disqualify Paul, they can't have the position they want in the church. There's the problem. And there will always be that. Let me warn you. There will always be those that have their agenda. And if they can't, if, if you have some position, and notice Paul says, my position, my authority that God's given me, authority, God always grants authority and he couples it with responsibility. That's a godly way of doing things. There's never authority without responsibility, nor authority, nor responsibility without authority. God always, for whatever mission he gives you, he gives you the commission to complete it. He will always do that. And Paul says, the authority God's given me is to build you up. And I get the idea here that these people are challenged by Paul's authority because they're like, hey, we deserve to be. Now, Paul was the one who, with his crew, appointed the elders of Corinth. So when Paul left, there were other people that said, hey, hey, I want to be an elder. But they're like, but Paul didn't say that. The crew didn't say that. They said this guy should be, and they got really upset. Does that make sense? So what happened is, because of that, they had to create their own little thing, their own IHatePaul.com website, and then kind of create this thing and stir it up within the church and say, hey, 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 we're the ones who should be in authority, and let me tell you why. And that's where he goes with the next section. Look at verse 12 with me. For we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves, but they, measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves, are not wise. And there becomes their tactics. Number one, they measure themselves by themselves. And two, they compare themselves among themselves. So this is the way it looks. They create their own strata or their own criteria of what it really looks like to be right. And then with that, it's not biblical, it's not with Christ as our example. Then they look at each other, and now they're competing with each other over who can be the greatest among that criteria. Let me explain. In one case, what you would have is, well, let's go with the other. Let's start with that. Paul's example was Jesus Christ. He would say, follow me as I follow Christ. He was the person he was going to compare himself to. Now, if you want to be as godly as possible, he's the guy to compare to. Would you agree? And because of that, you're always going to be humbled. You're never going to look and go, man, I'm doing awesome. Check out how much like Jesus I am. What person in the right mind would say that? Even Jesus didn't say, check out how much like the Father I am, although he is. 
So when Paul would look at that, he's like, you know, I want to be more and more and more like that guy, and I know that I'm not as much like that as I want to be, and that kept him humble, but it kept him serving, and the primary motivation then became love. How do I selflessly serve you guys and not make this about me? So I don't need to promote me, I'm going to promote Christ. I don't need to make this the Paul hour, I want to make this the Jesus hour. This isn't Paul's seminary, the school of Paul, the seminary of Paul, the denomination of Paul. You guys aren't Paulites. You were about your Christians. And then there's another crew, one they're different. Now, if they know that Paul's kind of got that thing nailed, then well, they have to find another niche. So what other niches do we have? Well, we have the spiritual niche, the Holy Spirit niche. That's one. How does that work? Well, Paul's not trying to tell everyone how spiritual he is by how much he speaks in tongues, for instance. And Paul would even say, by the way, when he writes to the Corinthians, I think I speak in tongues more than any of you guys, but I just don't do it in front of you guys all the time because it doesn't edify you. The fact that he had to tell them that tells us that they didn't even, I don't even know if they knew he did. So you can have that within church. But can't that be a surface evaluation? You can just look and you can fabricate that kind of spirituality. No, I'm not telling you every time it's happening, it's fabricated. I'm just telling you, you can fake it. And so you have those that are like, well, we're the spiritual thing. We're going to be the spiritual thing. And here's how the spiritual thing works. Everyone at first starts looking up and saying, God, we need an experience from you. And the first person that has that experience, and maybe they would. Maybe in many cases it can be. It can start as a genuine experience. Jenny gets so overwhelmed by the fact that she is forgiven, she starts to cry. That can be a genuine move of God's Holy Spirit, wouldn't it? Anna could be so overwhelmed by how she's forgiven, she starts to laugh. My wife's a crier, I'm a laugher. When something comes overwhelming, she cries. When something comes overwhelming, I just laugh. If somebody pointed a gun at us, we'd look really psycho together, because she'd start crying, I'd start laughing. That's just kind of how we handle an, over, an abundance of emotion. <coughs> Excuse me, traditional. The problem isn't that. The problem is once Bruno says, oh, I have to prove that I'm going to be the next pastor here or the next assistant pastor here, and so I need to be the most spiritual, and the criteria now is spiritual experience. So he looks and he sees Jenny, and he sees her cry. So what does he do? He has to cry, but he has to cry more. Right? So Jenny might do the traditional English... <laughs> A couple tears and a little sniffle. Oh, oh, but not... I mean, Bruno, he runs a little hotter because he's Portuguese, so he has to kind of openly cry a little bit. <laughs> but then comes Deborah, and Deborah burns real hot. She's Italian, right? So she looks over there, and she sees Bruno, and she goes, the, the move is crying, and now she's throwing herself on the ground going, Ah! Why you? And she's just crying out. Now, that could be a genuine move of God, or it can be competition. Does that make sense? Anna's laughing. Daniel's trying to match that because he's trying to prove he's spiritual. Lucas looks at that, and he goes, oh, come on, Brazilian, we have to be out. And now he's going to laugh and roll on the floor and giggle and oh. And now you have that. Now, I'm not telling you when more than one person laughs, it's not a move of God. What I am telling you is you can fake it. You can create an environment where the really great people do that. Does that make sense? Here's the problem. That there are going to be some people who are predisposed to never having that experience. 
and we'll feel like second-class citizens. And to be honest, they just might be British. Because we do not have those experiences like that as much. We have them deep, deep, deep in here. And I'm not trying to pick. I'm just trying to be honest. Well, here's another one. We're really smart. If you were a really cool Christian, you will have memorized all of C.S. Lewis's books by now. You quote them. And then go find, you know, go to Tate Modern and actually try to explain some of those pieces that really are like a red dot on canvas, right? And how about the struggle of humanity with that or whatever, you know? And then go and see some pretentious indie film. And the reason it's indie is because even the people who made it don't know what they're saying. And then they, people go, I'm not going to pay for that. I don't even know what that means. And, and what does it mean? And the director's like, I don't know what it means either. And, you know, but it looks pretentious, you know, and we're going to do that. And then we're going to all, we're going to quote all of these and we're going to make sure that everybody knows about our church fathers and all that. Oh, we Scripture is kind of cool, but all this stuff. And what happens is it gets so convoluted that there are a group of people that, that talk so smart that nobody even knows what they're saying and everybody feels so dumb that they're like, I could never do that. I couldn't even fake that. I'd have to make up words to try to be in that crowd. And then they become the, the, the experts. And the rest of the, the church just sits around and goes, well, that's what the experts look like. They're doctor so-and-so with this and this and the PhD and this and that. I'm not telling you that if you have those things again, that that's, a, that's horrible. What I'm saying is if that becomes the criteria for what makes a leader, we're in trouble. And by the way, can I just dare say we are in danger of that here in this country. Where what really may be the criteria for a leader among the church is how smart they may appear to be. But you can have that. And then you can have a church where it's like, hey, look at what really makes you cool is how cool you are. Can you play an instrument? Can you sing? How many tattoos do you have? What do they say? Oh, I'm sorry. That gothic tattoo thing, that's an old thing. Do you have any like just scriptures tattooed on your leg? Well, that'll be in for the next couple of years, and then you'll have to get it burned off with a new one. And you, know, it's like, and you get those kind of things. And all of a sudden, it's like the way you dress. And I've been to places where, and here's the problem. If you come in as a sinner, and you feel uncomfortable in anything but your sin, we've got an issue here. And you think, oh man, I'm too white, I'm not Jewish enough, I don't have enough tattoos or piercings, or I'm not this, or I'm not that, I'm not Asian at all, or whatever. You know, I have to bring in my daughter or no one will accept me. Or whatever it is, we know that we're in trouble. And that's what happens here. And all of it, all of it can be surface. And it starts with, well, I, I don't know how to step ahead as Christian so I have to figure out what makes me step ahead and then set my own rules. And if I could build the rules against uh, uh, that favor my strengths, well, then surely I will then excel in that community. Does that make sense? And we can all do that. You watch a place where a really pretty girl walks by and you watch a handful of guys that all have their natural tendencies or the things that ex- excel them and they all start to peacock. A guy that can sing starts to hum. A guy that's kind of big starts to flex. Another, you know, it's like, it's amazing to watch how different guys kind of try to present themselves, put themselves into the front of the line, the front of the queue when something like that happens because they're trying to get in the front. And that should never be the case. Here's what it should be. Selflessness. Surrender. Which, by the way, you really can't fake. Not making it about you. 
you can't really fake that. Because the moment you're like, oh, no, 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 it's not about me, but you spend all your time talking about you, it sounds like it's not about you, but it's still all about you. It's still all about you. And Paul says, here's the way that they're doing this. First of all, they set up a criteria where they are going to win, and then they compare themselves with each other, so they set up a society that you're not going to be a part of unless you actually do it their way by their rules. And that can happen way in Christianity as well. There is a scientific community that does that to the point where if you actually believe God created things, you aren't welcome in that community at all. You are just not welcome there. And they say, well, you don't understand. We have actually have these charts and these graphs and these timetables, and we all refer to them now, but none of them are substantiated by anything other than subjective, you know, subjective information that the Christians still use too. And what will happen is we could get suckered into that because now there's a society among that, among that group. That all refer to the same charts and the same graphs, so people assume they're a fact as a result of that. And Christians even buy the lies now. And they're like, well, we all know that this graph says this, and everyone refers to that graph. If you have a PhD, you, you know this graph. I mean, there's like, you know, there's, you know, there's like all of the, the table of elements, you know, there's the body parts, and then there's this graph. Which is, now, which is completely not fact. But if you start by creating a society, you start by saying, here's the criteria for what's cool and what's accepted, and then we create a society among it, the only way to get in is to actually accept the rules. And that's what happens. And here's the danger. As a Christian, we want to be able to, and, and here's the day, we, we want to be able to get into them to be able to get there. But here's the problem. We're so busy trying to get Christ to their culture that we try to change Jesus to fit it. So Jesus is tattooed, and Jesus is constantly speaking in tongues, and Jesus is cool with this, and he's cool with that, and he's totally all right with sexual freedom, you know, whatever, what you want to do with it, because after all, that's what society says. But we're not supposed to be dragging Jesus into the culture, contrary to what some may say. We're supposed to be trying to bring the culture to Jesus. And that's totally different, because one thing's the landmark, and the other thing's the thing that's supposed to move. Jesus is the landmark. The rest is supposed to move to Him. That's what we're supposed to do first. And if we can't do it, we can't do it with anything else. And Paul says, this is what these people are doing. They set their own world up. They set their own society up. And then said, Paul doesn't fit into this society. And Paul is saying, you know what? You're right, I don't. But that isn't because I'm wrong here. The problem is they've set it up under the wrong pretenses and the wrong foundations. That's the point here. So when Paul wraps this around, understand, he says, God's given us, the, the, the authority God gave us was to bless and to build you guys up. Now, in that authority, we're going to have to make choices that are going to be very unpopular. But that does not mean that they're wrong. And people say, well, who do you think you are to make those choices? Well, I'll tell you who I am. And Paul would say, I'll tell you who I am. I am the person with the responsibility with this fellowship. And as a responsibility of this fellowship, I have then the authority to actually carry that out. And so when he picks certain people for these leaders, these other people who weren't picked have a real problem with it. And instead of them just going elsewhere and just going and doing it, they're too busy trying to take over the thing that Paul did. There's the problem. 
And there will always be that. Paul says, and notice here, verse 13. We, however, will not boast beyond measure, but within the limits of the sphere which God has appointed us, a sphere which especially includes you. For we are not overextending ourselves as though our authority did not extend to you. For it was to you that we came with the gospel of Christ. So these people that are standing against Paul are saying, Paul doesn't even know what he's saying. How could he possibly make judgment calls on a fellowship that he's not at anymore? Paul says, we were the ones who came here with the gospel in the first place. We were the ones who saw what the Lord did at the very beginning of this thing. And not just for a week or two and left, for for over a year and a half. So these people are like, yeah, but we are here now. Paul doesn't have a right to say anything. And that's why Paul says, well, if they don't think I have a right to say anything, and they're obviously unintimidated by us when we show up, just wait to see how we live out that letter when we get there. Which, by the way, would have been kind of fun to watch. Pardon me for saying. He says, look, we're not going to boast in ourselves. We're not going to promote ourselves. We're not going to try to make this look like it's about us. This is about you, and they're hurting you. There's the point. So, we're not overextending ourselves. Our spirit especially includes you. It was to you that we came with the gospel in the first place, the gospel of Christ. Verse 15, not boasting of things beyond measure, that is, of another man's labors. This was our labor. But having hope that as your faith is increased, we shall be greatly enlarged by you in our sphere to preach the gospel in the regions beyond you and not to boast in another man's sphere of accomplishment. Now, before we get to the last two verses, here's our key, beloved. Paul says, if I could have my way, this is what it would look like. You guys would grow to the place where you would actually start reaching out and touching the rest of the world. That's my hope. We're not going to try to build some kind of great thing here so that it's all gathered under one roof so that everyone can look and say, look at the biggest thing in London or look at the biggest thing in Corinth or look at the biggest thing in whatever we want to put it. The goal is not for people to say, oh, we associate that name with the biggest, coolest thing in town. He said, what I'd rather see is a healthy organism that produces fruit, which, by the way, Jesus told us the only way you're going to bear fruit is to have root and to be properly rooted. And so he goes, here's the idea. Instead of making this a gigantic thing, as it grows, we want to send you out to do more of this. To be able to go out and plant churches everywhere in the area. So that people don't look and go, check out this gigantic thing. But rather, wow, look how London is being affected by Jesus. Look at how Corinth is being affected by Jesus. That's Paul's mission. Now these other guys, what they're saying is, if we can actually have our way in this whole thing, don't you realize we could be the coolest thing in London? We could be this thing where everyone looks and goes, man, this has got the lights, this has got the band, this has got the thing. Do you see how huge the building is? And it's full all the time. Twelve services. I mean, clearly God must be in the place. He could be, but he doesn't have to to make that happen. 
And I'm not trying to bang anything that's, that's got any substance of that kind of nature. I'm here to tell you that what Paul is saying is that people who promote themselves are not people who need to lead the church. That's the point. It's people who are actually want to make Christ known. There it is. So when you go onto the church website, whatever the church would be, and the first thing you see is a, you know, that fills your screen is the face of the pastor. Well, you get the idea. So he says in the last two verses, but he who glories, it isn't that glorying is bad. It's what you're glorying in. What is it you spend your time talking about? What is it you spend your time saying, this is great. Let him glory in the Lord. For it isn't he who commends himself that's approved, but it's whom the Lord commends. Jesus himself even said, look, if if, if I come in and the Father justifies me or or clarifies or he stands for me, you'll put up with that. You won't put up with that at all. But if a man comes in his own name, oh, you'll put up with him all the time. And by the way, that was the Pharisee way of doing things, was self-promotion. And let's face it, there will always be that. And I want to warn you. There will be people who will always... And, and, and listen, I really believe God's called every one of you to ministry. I really believe He's called you to ministry in such a way that as the Lord starts to, to bless and to, to substantiate and to found in whatever way He wants to, there will be people who will do this for you. They will peacock in front of you. And you've got to be careful for that person that seems like everything they ever do is in front of you for your note-taking. And there are certain things you've got to be careful of in Scripture. One thing it tells us, by the way, is if a person's house is not in order, they're not to be in ministry until that gets worked out. So when someone says, but I have such gifts, I'm like, then use them in your home. And God takes that very seriously. And listen, I've been around the block enough times to tell you to, to know what happens when you watch people that whose house isn't in order step into a situation. It brings great havoc. Because if they are competing, and I watch this a lot, where a husband and wife are competing over importance, they will take that and they'll go to the church and they'll try to do the same thing there. And what will happen is they'll start using keywords like investment or, you know, importance or the time stature. These kind of things where all of a sudden you're like, you know what? You're right. We need to be. And what happens is it starts dividing the church because some are going to follow him, some are going to follow her, and everyone's busy trying to be important. What happens is it makes it turn it spins people on their ear and everybody gets so insecure and nobody feels loved anymore and they all because it all becomes about them and it happens so easily. Especially when someone comes in in that condition and a pastor who's worth his salt says, Until I will help you, I'll meet with you guys, we're gonna get your house in order, but until your house gets in order, you can't do anything else yet. They're like, Well, who do you think you are? A man who's going to stand before God with these people you've been, he's given me. Now the reason I say that is, that's what's happening here. I can't tell you that about their house, but I can tell you that's what their agenda was, was to get to that place where they should be in front, and they weren't getting there. And what Paul says is, and he quotes from some of my favorite verses in Scripture, from Jeremiah chapter 9. If you have your Bibles, would you please open there? Jeremiah chapter 9. God is clearly speaking to a renegade group of people who are really now going to get it. They're going to they're have to be punished. And they felt like they've been impervious to any judgment of God, but now they're clearly going to receive it. 
And yet, in all of this, God is dealing with the same situation with the religious leaders. And this is what he says in Jeremiah 9, verse 23. Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches. But him who glories, let him glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness on the earth. For in these I delight, says the Lord. You want to boast about anything? Boast about your relationship with me. Boast about who I am in it. That I love to exercise loving kindness. That I love to discern what is right and wrong and then make the wrong right. Because I delight to do so. So Paul ends this with, it's not going to be he who commends himself that's ever going to be in any way applauded by God. You never have to try to tell God why you're so important to him. You'll never have to do that. Because he died for you when you hated him. Let God commend you. I'd like to end with this thought. And we go to prayer. When Jesus tells us about two men who went to pray. One of them was the religious leader of the day. He was a Pharisee. He was, in the sight of the religious environment, the highest level. He was the archbishop. He was the pinnacle of his success in the religious occupation. And he went in to pray. And then there was the lowest of all, a tax collector. Worse than a Gentile who couldn't have gone in to pray at all. He'd had to stay on the outside beyond the court in Solomon's colony. He was a traitor to his own people, sold them out, and they both went in to pray. If we were in a melodrama, we would cheer the first and boo and hiss the second. And the first one stood up and he said, I thank you, God, that I am not like other men. Do you hear how he's comparing himself with others? I fast, I pray, I give. And that's how we set up his criteria of what's cool. Do you see how that worked? And then Jesus said, and then it was this tax collector. He, could, he didn't give. He didn't pray daily. He wasn't known for his austerity or all of his learning. He wasn't speaking in tongues. He didn't have Jesus tattoos or a fish on the back of his anything. But he didn't raise his head to heaven. But he beat his breast because he was really genuinely torn up over his sin. And he just said, God, have mercy on me, sinner. The only mention in the second of himself was one of being of need, of a sinner. Every mention in the first man was of what he's done for God. What would justify him as important in the sight of the kingdom? Jesus' response, and I remind you, Jesus will be the judge of all of those prayers, according to Scripture, is I tell you, it was the second man who went away justified, not the first. And I want to let you know, that had to be one of the strangest things that anyone had ever heard before. It was opposite of every single thing that they had been taught before. 
And here's my prayer tonight. That tonight, we would let God set the criteria. Selflessness, commitment, faithfulness. To become more like Jesus. To compare ourselves to Jesus. I don't want to be like Billy Graham. I don't even want to be like Chuck Smith. I want to be like Jesus. Let him do the rest. And I want you to want to be like Jesus too. And the way that he's going to bear forth himself and shine through you will be probably very different than me. The beauty is is that between us then, if they hung out with both of us, they would get to see two beautiful sides of Christ. And the more of us together, the more clear and the more faceted we'll see the grandiose beauty of our Savior and Lord. Oh, that's my heart. We won't set up a society here that says, if you're really cool, you will have memorized this book. You pray out loud this way. I would want a person... Aren't you touched by a person who just gives their life to the Lord and their prayer is beautiful and clunky and awkward, but, but true? And they're like, uh, what do I do at the end? Amen? Yeah, okay, man. Like, God, uh, I really wish that this would happen or whatever. I just think it's beautiful because you hear the, the truth in that. But I wouldn't want to be in a place where you're like, well, I don't know. I don't pray well. Well, don't worry. We'll teach you how to pray well. First of all, you need to start learning how to speak King James. You know, and get the King James warble and that. I mean, oh, that we could just be real with God. And let him be the criteria. Here's the problem. It will demand more than any of those other things. But it will also include everyone. We're all, you're all invited. Me too. To die to self. Take on his yoke and burden. And let him make us faithful, caring people that love each other. That aren't busy looking for promotion. Me either. That are just busy looking to love. That's what Jesus did. He emptied himself of everything, came to earth, a human servant, obedient to death, even death on the cross, so that he could redeem us. How amazing is that? If he wanted to be promoted, he could have stayed where he was. Every knee is going to bow, every tongue is going to confess that he's Lord. The only difference is him coming to earth allowed him to have his own call him that. Would you pray with me? Lord, I want to thank you for this text. And Lord, I, I, I pray specifically right now for that part, that, that carnal part of any of us, Lord, that's looking for any form of importance in, uh, Lord, in some form of promotion. And Lord, I, I recognize that within every one of us, you've given us an appetite to be important, to feel important. But Lord, the issue is that we would find it in you. And Lord, that we would do... Uh, that there would be this whole new society created where the standard is you, Jesus. <clears throat> Not some great teachers. And I know that Calvary can kind of be known for its teachers. Not some kind of great spiritual experience. Not some kind of great musical giftings. Lord, but this church would not be known first and foremost as the musical or the young or the hip or the wow church or the whatever church. But it would be this strange thing where it's like they just love Jesus and the love of Jesus is there on each other to love each other. And we recognize nothing gets more assaulted in the church because it's so easy to do church without that. But it's not acceptable to you. 
So, Lord, we are to humble ourselves before you and allow you to lift us up as you wish. That we take the lowest seat at the table and allow you to call us forward if that's what you want. And, Lord, may we just have the privilege and the joy of just knowing that serving you is just awesome, regardless of where we're at. Jesus, I want to thank you that you gave us that example, and we live in that example, that that's what we're to follow. You emptied yourself of all of the rights, all of the power that you had in and of yourself, so that you could suffer with us and be tired with us and be hungry with us and grumpy with us and have to put up with trying people and faithless people and empty promises and and yet in all of that Lord how you put up with all of that and then still died on the cross for the guy that nailed you to it and granted forgiveness to a guy who had first cursed you from the cross beside you you were just always ready to edify. You saw the responsibility to be the savior of the world and you took it seriously. At no promotion of yourself, but for devotion to the others, me included. And with that, because you died on the cross, you saved me. And because you rose again, you're my Lord. And if you're my Lord, then you are to call me to become more like you. And that will include suffering. That will include selflessness. That will include surrender and sacrifice. And it's all of those things that real Christianity is supposed to look like when we're to pick up our cross daily, deny ourselves and follow you. And yet, Lord, we recognize that that's not socially necessarily the face of the church uh, in mass but we really want it to be here. So let that start here in our own hearts and then unify us to do that. We call on your name to do this because we can't on our own. Make us that kind of church. That whoever you raise up, whatever you do, Lord, that it would be to your glory. And Lord, to make a name for you, not for ourselves. And in that, Lord, we pray for the salvation of this city and that you would deploy us to it. And we thank you for the blessing of calling on your name tonight. Jesus, in your name. Amen.